Hi, this is Father Don Planty, pastor of St. Charles Borromeo Catholic Church in Arlington, Virginia. Welcome to the St. Charles Church Talks podcast. As those of you who are regulars at P3 know, I've been doing a series of talks on top 10 faves. I did my top 10 favorite inspiring books, top 10 favorite inspiring places, top 10 inspiring uh, book, uh, music, works of uh, music, and different top 10 lists. I was going to do a top 10 favorite poems, because I think poems can really inspire us. But um, the last three days, I've been away for ongoing formation with my brother priests, and I didn't have the time I thought I was going to have to prepare the talk. So, um, and then we tag team. So I was gone uh, Monday through Wednesday with half of the priests of the Diocese of Arlington and our bishop, and then today Father David left, and he's gone with the other half of the priests from Wednesday through Friday, which is also why we have a guest priest helping with confessions tonight. So I didn't have the time I thought I would have to prepare a talk, so I'm going to do something I've done before. I did it just a few weeks ago here, and in the past I've done it maybe once a year or something, but uh, so this is basically anything you ever wanted to know about the Catholic faith, uh, Catholic church, history, trivia, me, whatever you want to know about the Catholic faith, which is 2,000 years old and rich and deep and profound and awesome, uh, but never had the chance to ask or were afraid to ask or you want to stump the priest. So this is your chance. Uh, here I am at your service, uh, and uh, I'm happy to entertain your questions. And if you don't have any questions for me, maybe I'll start asking you questions. We had some great questions last time. Any of you here a couple weeks ago when we did this? Yeah, we had some really good, uh, good questions, I thought. Anybody? Yes. Um, when did the veneration of relics first begin in the church? Okay, when did the veneration of relics first begin in church? That's a really good question. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive there is something in the Acts of the Apostles, right? I'm trying to remember exactly where it is. I should know better, but I believe there's something. Where is the reference to the, the, the holy? There's something. I should know better. This is where it's good to stump the priest, and this is where I, and this is also good for my humility, right? Because you can see that I don't know everything uh, and everything that I should know. But there is something in the scriptures about them touching. Well, certainly, you know, they just touched the cloak of Jesus, right? Or they touched the cloak of Peter. Or Peter walks by and his shadow falls on the person, right? But I believe there's somewhere in in the Bible about the touching of the holy relics that brings about a salvation that brings about miracles, right? Certainly, it's attested to in the early church. That's why from the very beginning, from the apostolic age, um, even when the church was underground, because remember, for the first 300 years of the church's history, uh, the church was not legal. It was persecuted. Churches didn't really start being built until after Constantine converted, and there was a huge building program, right? That's what the old Constantinian basilicas in Rome date from the 300s, right? Well, three, 340s or so, 330s, 340s, right? because most of them have been torn down and rebuilt, right? The St. Peter's that we see today um, is not the original Constantinian Basilica. The St. Peter's we see today was built, you know, in the 16th century, the 1506. That, that I do know. St. Peter's, the old St. Peter's was torn down beginning in 1506, and then the new St. Peter's was dedicated in 1626. But from the beginning, the, when churches were built, and even when the church was underground and the Christians had altars built where they would secretly celebrate mass, usually in homes, but then sometimes also in the catacombs, uh, they would do so um, over the tombs of the saints, those that were venerated as martyrs and saints, because they, and they also, they, they realized from the beginning, 
that miracles took place in these places. And so they realized that they could venerate, that they would venerate the relics of the saints because uh, they worked miracles. The relics, of course, being, um, you know, the, the first class relics, of course, being bodily remains of the saints because, you know, we are human persons, body and soul. We don't have a body, we are a body. And our soul is incarnate in our body and our soul doesn't act without our body, right? That's why death is so terrible, right? We're, that's not the way we were originally intended to be and that's not how we were made. You know, death is this separation, it's like ripping apart of the body and soul. That's why it's an awful thing. It's a consequence of original sin and we fear it, right, in a sense, right? Um, that's not the way we we're supposed to be. We we're supposed to be incarnate, body and soul. And so, of course, um, we believe in the resurrection of the dead, that one day our souls and bodies will be reunited. And so we venerate and honor the body even after we have died because we realize it will rise again and our soul will once again be incarnate in our bodies. But of course, those bodies of the holy paints, holy souls, the holy saints that went before us, we venerate in a particular way because they were extraordinarily holy and recognized by the church to be extraordinarily holy. And because of that, there's always been great veneration to their tombs. And from the beginning, Christians experienced that venerating those relics and those tombs led to miracles. So it's a very ancient practice. I know there's something in scripture. Uh, yeah, what'd you find? Uh, Acts 11, 12. Great, Acts 11, 12, go ahead. That's it. What translation of the Bible is this? Dewey Reams is not the most accurate and best translation of the Bible. Where are we? 11 what? Sorry. I'm sorry. What? 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 That's it. I knew it. So Acts 19, 11, and 12. And God wrought by the hand of Paul more than common miracles, so that even though there were brought from his body to the sick, handkerchiefs and aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the wicked spirits went out of them. So those are second-class relics, right? Those are relics that touched St. Paul's body, these handkerchiefs and cloths, and they took him to the sick and the, the possessed, and boom. So there you go, right in scripture. Thank you. I knew it was in there somewhere. Thank you. Did you Google, Google that, or did you know it by memory? You've got, a, you've got a concordance in the back? Very good. Very good. Good question. What other questions you got? Yes. If that's not the most accurate, best translation of the Bible, do you have one to recommend? Yeah, I would recommend either the New American Bible, which is the one that's used in the sacred liturgy, that's the one you hear read at Mass, right? Or in any apps or books or Magnificat or how you have for the liturgy, or the uh, Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, right? Uh, those, t those are the ones that are most commonly used by Catholics. Now, there are other translations, I'm like, I even have a little NIV, a New Testament I've had since I was like in high school that I use sometimes to pray, right? You can use other translations. Um, but most of those modern translations, like even the NIV is more accurate than the Dewey Reams. The Dewey Reams is based on, uh, the Dewey Reams is a, is a 16th century translation, which is based on, we have, we have better sources and better critical editions of the ancient manuscripts in the ancient Bible than was available at the time the Dewey Reams was, was written and, and eventually, now, now it's translated in English, well, yeah. Uh, but so, you know, basically it's a, it's a, it's a counter-reformation Bible, right? But we have better sources and better original texts that are now used for modern translations that they had, than they had in the 1500s, right? Even the Vulgate, right? The, the Vulgate, the official Bible of the church, there's a Nova Vulgata, there's a new Vulgate, because the old Vulgate, which was translated by St. Jerome, because St. Jerome, great biblical scholar, fifth century, right? St. Jerome uh, pretty much uh, took the whole Hebrew Old Testament, 
and the Greek New Testament and translated them into Latin, and that was the official Bible of the church for a thousand years, right? More than a thousand years. Um, but the, the manuscripts we have today for the Old and New Testament are more accurate and better than what St. Jerome had at his disposal in Bethlehem when he translated the Bible back then. So there's actually a Nova Vulgata, there's a new Vulgate, which is the official, as it were, of Latin Bible of the church that would be used, for example, in, any, in the Latin lectionary, right? But that's more accurate and, than, than St. Jerome's Old Vulgate. So newer translations tend to be more accurate than the older ones. That said, as the Italians say, traductore, traditore. A translator is a traitor, right? Because you can't perfectly capture in another language the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the fineness of the original language, right? So that's why, unless you're a Hebrew and Greek scholar, neither which of which I am, the best way to understand the original meaning of something uh, is to either read a commentary that explains what the original Greek or Hebrew means and or to read several different translations. So one way, to, a good way to get the sense of a Bible passage is to read more than one English translation if you really want to get into what that passage is. Does that make sense? Yeah. But so for example, uh, I generally recommend those, those two, yeah, New American, because that's what's used in the liturgy, but the, the, revised, the revised Standard Version Catholic Edition is RSV, CE. The Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition is really good. So for example, the Ignatius Press Bible is RSV, right, Catholic Edition. And their New Testament, with all the critical notes, that's a super New Testament to have, to use. Not just for the translation, but also because of all the explanations of the footnotes and the charts and all that good stuff. Okay, yes? Beyond the Ignatius Press Bible, is there any other Bible with biblical commentary that you would recommend? Yeah, there's about 500 biblical commentaries I would recommend. Um, so. Um, yeah, so um, if you have $1,000 uh, to invest in Bible commentaries, there is the uh, InterVarsity uh, Press, which is ironically is a Protestant press, uh, years ago published the entire commentary of the fathers on the uh, Bible. So you've got uh, one for each of the book of the Bible. Mostly, some of them are combined, but it's basically for me it's like two shelves, and it's uh, all the fathers' commentary on sacred scripture, right? Uh, the fathers figured it all out. The fathers knew, knew everything, right? They, they, they figured the whole faith and how to explain the faith from the beginning. And so their commentaries on sacred scripture are just beautiful and inspiring. So that's one, but that's really expensive. Um, if you're looking for, it depends what you're looking for. If you're looking for a, for example, a guide to studying the Old Testament, that's one thing. If you're looking for a commentary on the book of Song of Songs, that's a, that's another, those are two different things, right? If you're looking for a study guide, it's one thing. If you're looking for a commentary, it's another thing. Um, the Anchor Bible series is very good on commentaries. It'll take you through every single word and tell you what the Hebrew or the Greek means and tell you the context and the history and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I, you know, if you want to take the spiritual, uh, fuller sense of what's going on in scriptures, the fathers are usually the best. More critical historical apparatus, the Anchor Bible is a good series. Uh, those are hard to find. Um, there's all kinds of good stuff out there. Um, you know, Even something like so online, the St. Paul Bible Center, St. Paul Study Center, which is out of Steubenville. Scott Hahn's involved in that and a number of good scholars. And they've got really great materials for scripture studies and scripture classes. And even Sunday, uh, Sunday, um, Sunday reading reflections, right? If you find your homilies and your parish are boring and the priests are boring and the homilies are not, not inspiring, go to the St. Paul Center and you'll find some good commentaries there, right, on the Sunday readings. We're not going to mention any names of any priests of any parishes, right? 
What else? There's so much good content out there online. I mean, there's great old books too, right? But there's just so much great stuff online now. That's why one thing uh, that our parish is doing uh, since we started at the beginning of Lent is every week, uh, you'll find it on our social media, you'll find it on our website, you'll find it on our bulletin, you'll find it on our weekly email. We have a concentration on Catholic content. Every week we are focusing on a different resource that's out there that gives you great Catholic content. So check that stuff out. I'm sorry, you're a convert? So you know it all. You don't need to ask me anything. I got a few too. <laughs> Notice there's no jokes about diocesan priests, only about the different religious orders. That's a, that's a very political question. Uh, so, um, yes. So, for the record, when the Jesuits are good, they're the best. So I've had three great spiritual directors in my life as a seminarian, as a priest. And one of them was from my time of studies in Rome when I did my doctoral work in Rome. And his name is Daniele Libanotti. He's a Jesuit priest. He was, at, when I met him, he was rector of the Jesu, that is the mother church of the Jesuits in Rome, where St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Francis Xavier, and others are buried. Uh, he's now an auxiliary of the Diocese of Rome. He also happens to be one of the exorcists of the Diocese of Rome. And uh, twice he invited me to assist him at exorcisms, which is a pretty amazing experience, I, I gotta tell you. But so Father Daniel is like, so now Bishop Daniel is steeped in the Jesuit tradition and the spiritual exercises, discernment of spirits. I mean, he's classic old school. And as I say, he's also an official exorcist. I mean, the, the man is an extraordinary spiritual director, a great spiritual father, and he knows his theology and his sacred art. I mean, he's, he's, he's got it all going on. He's great. You know, when they're great, they're the best. Uh, that said, like a lot of religious orders, um, um, you know, there was a lot of confusion, especially after the Second Vatican Council, which resulted in a lot of religious orders sort of losing their way in terms of uh, no longer being faithful to the original charism and the focus of the orders for which they were founded. Uh, a lot of it was due to lack of good leadership in the orders. Now, you can't blame the Second Vatican Council on that, actually quite the opposite. Uh, it's what happened in the church before the council that was such a mess that resulted in the messes that happened right after the council. There's no way that an ecumenical council of the universal church that happens from 1962 to 1965 creates all this tumult all of a sudden in the next 20, 30 years. What happened? There was a reason there was a council. The church was in need of reform. So much of what was going on before the council was, uh, you know, the church, the church had armies of priests and nuns and Catholic st school students in their uniforms. And it was glorious to look at and behold. And like my mom talks about growing up in New York City in the 1950s, uh, going to Catholic school. And on St. Patrick's Day, patron saint of New York, every Catholic school kid in New York elementary through high school and all the universities and all the bands and everyone went down and they marched on the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And it was glorious because there's the Cardinal Archbishop of New York sitting in his throne on the front steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral, patron saint of New York, while up Fifth Avenue comes the whole army of all of Catholic New York. We're talking like hundreds of thousands of people, right? And everyone's in their uniform and everything is perfect. My mom said they froze to that because they had to wear the uniforms. They couldn't wear any coats because they had to show off their uniforms and it was March and it was freezing in New York and any of that. But it was glorious to behold. But you know what? So much of it was an inordinate focus on the exterior observance of the forms to the detriment of the interiority, right? 
to these great armies of, of nuns and priests and religious orders and, and Catholic school kids and everything, but so much of the focus was on the externals that when the externals that could change, because they were human things, not divine law, but human law, because so much emphasis was, was placed on, on two things, I think, on, on the externals and then on a lack of clarity between what was of divine law and what was merely human and ecclesiastical law, when the things that could change were changed, the whole structure collapsed. And unfortunately, that was the case with a lot of religious orders. They were, they were, they were, you know, they had tons of vocations, and the seminaries were full, right? And, and you see the pictures of the ordination classes, and you know, and it was amazing, right? But, but I mean, the rules and the strictness of the external observance of the forms was just inordinate. It was ridiculous, right? To the point that when certain rules changed, there was there was no substance to sustain it, right? Uh, and so, so much collapsed afterwards. And this was the case with a lot of religious orders. They stopped wearing their habits, and they, they gave up on their original charisms and started doing all kinds of other things, and there was no more discipline and obedience, and people left, you know. You know the vast majority of those, you know, we lost thousands and thousands of priests and religious and nuns, you know, after the Second Vatican Council. They were formed in the pre-conciliar church, not in the post-conciliar church. You want to see something even more chilling than that? Go to like the website of SNAP, which is like the Society of Those Abused or by Priests, you know, and you got the list of all the priests there. It's got their photographs, it's got their names, and their all their cases and where they were and, and what happened. And look at the ordination dates. These horrible, terrible scandals we've had, uh, the vast majority of which took place in like the 80s and 90s, were done by were perpetrated by I would say 80, 90 percent of priests that were formed, that were, you see the ordination dates? 65, 62, 7, priests that were, that were formed in the old dispensation. When you were in the seminary, you just went through the rule. You just, they didn't have spiritual directors. There was no psychological evaluation after the seminary. There was like, you just, you got accepted and you went through the motions and you wore your, you know, you showed up for everything and you got ordained, you got, there was, there was, there was a lack of serious focus on interiority. I'm kind of going off now on, you know, but, but this is part of like what you're talking about. With how did this army of extraordinary priests that set the world on fire and then evangelized, you know, the Americas and Asia, how did they end up, you know, you know, um, having, you know, rainbow flag masses and stuff? Well, it's because they, they just, they just, you know, they lost the focus, the, pro, you know, the proper focus. Um, and, um, you know, ultimately, it was a lack of a lack of, of solid leadership, solid leadership, um, especially at the provincial level. You know, the, a provincial superior is the superior of a religious. In a religious order, you have you you know di dioceses. Like I belong to the diocese. Around here, I'm a priest of the diocese. Around, my superior is the bishop, and I'm incarnated in a diocese, and I belong to this geographical diocese led by a bishop. The equivalent in law to a diocesan bishop in the religious life is a superior, a provincial superior. So the provincial of the Franciscans or the provincial of the Jesuits, the provincial of Dominicans is in charge of that province of all of their religious. And they assign them and make sure they're well formed and all that kind of stuff. Really, the, uh, the solidity of the provincial superiors broke. It's the same thing in the diocese, right? Where you had solid bishops, you had vocations, you had you know, faithful people, you had, you, know, you, had, you had vibrant Christian life, right? Where you had bishops that were teaching and doing goofy stuff, you have goofy life, right? It's the same thing with the, with the religious orders, right? You have solid leadership. Uh, you're going to have uh, good followers. That, that's kind of, does that kind of answer your question, I hope? Yeah? Anyway, when they're good, they're the best. You find a Jesuit who's solid, be the best spiritual director you've ever had. As a matter of fact, 
the first spiritual director I had before Father Daniel was great, my great spiritual director in the seminary and then for a while afterwards, he was trained by the Jesuits, right, in real serious discernment of spirits, uh, in the spiritual exercises, in mental prayer, and when they're good, they're the best. Yeah. So, I hope I didn't offend anybody. And I mean that sincerely. I mean, like, I want to be fair to the religious orders, right? Like I say, one of my favorite priests, one of the greatest spiritual fathers I've ever had, who I admire so much and love so much, is Bishop Daniele Libanori, Auxiliary Bishop of Rome, um, an extraordinary priest and an exorcist. Now, if he walked in here, you'd be like, who's this little pudgy grandfatherly old guy? You're like, this guy's an exorcist. This guy, I've seen him, I have seen him expel demons from people. But you look at him, he's like, this grandfatherly, he loves cats, he always has cats. He's a little grandfatherly guy, really kind of roly-poly, really, but he has, a, he has a will of steel, he knows his theology, and he's an extraordinary priest. Society of Jesus. Yes, how am I doing on time? Go ahead. Well, which are we talking about? Women priests or transubstantiation? Like why women, I know why women priests, but like why they can't form the approach transubstantiation? Right? Why not speak her priests? You mean why? So, well, those are two really different questions. So, um, a, a woman couldn't make transubstantiation happen because she can't be a priest, but the same goes for this dude. Like, he can't make it happen because he's not a priest, right? So obviously, the, the thing you need to do to be able to take bread and wine and turn it to the body and blood of Jesus is to be ordained a priest, right? So there's two different questions there. One is, um, I suppose, you know, why is the priesthood reserved to men? And then secondly, how is it that the Eucharist is transubstantiated, right? Is that fair? Yeah, the first one. The first one? Okay. What did you tell her? I don't know. Or him. Maybe it was a him. I don't know if you... Come on, Catholics, you got to have great responses, right? Well, that's good. You're right. I mean, that's start with Jesus and then move on to his disciples, right? So who is the priest? The priest stands in the person of Christ, the head of the body, right? Remember, we are all members of the mystical body of Christ. He is the head and we are the members, right? And Jesus himself... Uh, is the great high priest, right? He is the one that offers himself as sacrifice for our salvation, right? So what is a priest? From the Old Testament times, a priest is one who offers sacrifice on behalf of the people, right? And Jesus is the great high priest because he does away with all the old sacrifices of the Old Testament that couldn't take away sin because as, as you know, St. Paul explains, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the, uh, the slitting the throats and the, and the burning up of bulls and goats and stuff doesn't take away sins. That was, that was symbolic of the Hebrew understanding that they had to make up for and offer sacrifice for their sins. But that doesn't, the blood of bull and goats doesn't take away sins. The blood of the spotless lamb without blemish, who is Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, does take away sin, right? So what, did the pre, what, were, the, what were the priests of the Old Testament doing? They were offering sacrifice on behalf of the people, right? In, as, a, as a symbol of the expiation for their sins. What makes Jesus the great high priest? He offers himself as a sacrifice to save us from our sins. 
and to make sure that that sacrifice is perpetuated over time, right? Jesus calls men after his own heart and consecrates them and entrusts his priesthood to them, right? Now remember, that one sacrifice of Christ that is offered on Calvary is offered once for all time. It's not repeated over and over again. And, you know, St. Paul makes that point. It's like, you know, in the Old Testament, they had to keep offering these sacrifices over and over and over and over again. That is, but Christ's sacrifice is offered once and for all to wash away sins, right? But that sacrifice is relived and perpetuated and celebrated every time we celebrate the Mass, right? Every time we celebrate the Mass, it is as, we, as it were. And that's why I love this ancient, ancient, it's not ancient, this uh, antique German hand-carved crucifix, which I find very moving and beautiful. It's appropriate that it's right above the altar because when we're celebrating Mass, we are standing at the foot of, of Christ's cross on Calvary. And, and once again, that, that, he is, that sacrifice, which is offered once and for all, is being actualized, represented, perpetuated, and made present in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And so the priest is the one chosen by Christ to continue to offer that sacrifice, um, which is offered once and for all uh, on his behalf and for his people. Now that said, the priest has three fundamental missions following the three fundamental missions of Jesus, which are also the fundamental missions uh, of all of the baptized and confirmed, which are the prophetic mission, that is proclaiming the good news of salvation, the truth of our faith, the priestly mission of offering sacrifice, of celebrating the liturgy and the sacraments, and the shepherding mission of guiding and serving others in charity, right? Everyone who is baptized and confirmed has those missions of being a prophet, a priest, and a shepherd or king of Jesus Christ, right? But the priest in a particular way does that as a representative of Christ, the head of the body. All of us are called to be other Christs by virtue of our baptism and our confirmation. All of us share in the universal priesthood of the baptized, right? All of us are called to be priests and offer ourselves in sacrifice and offer this sacrifice, right? But from among the baptized, some are called to follow Christ as the head of the body in offering that sacrifice. And inasmuch as the priest represents Jesus himself, who is incarnate as a male, then the priest also has to be a man. And this is why Jesus himself, although he had women disciples, and the, the Bible tells us clearly, you know, the New Testament tells us clearly that there are women that followed Jesus, that ministered to him. You know, the disciples all ran away at the Passion, and there were women at the foot of the cross. The only disciple that remained was John, right? So he had women that were faithful disciples, but he only chose men to carry on this mission because they represent him, and of course, he represents the Father, right? As St. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, Christ is the image, the ikonos. He is the icon of the invisible God. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To hear Jesus is to hear the Father. To experience what Jesus does for us is to experience what the Father does for us. Now, it's not that God the Father has a sex, right? Because he doesn't have a body. You have to have a body to have a sex, right? Today, they call it gender. That's not really what it is. It's sex, right? You have male or female sex, right? Gender is traditionally, we use that for animals in any event. Um, of course, Google gender, and you'll find like there's 62 now, something like that. I think six, maybe 65. Every day there's like more, right? In any event. Um, so, so the priest is called to represent Jesus who represents the Father. And although God the Father doesn't have a sex, he nevertheless reveals himself to us as Father. There's something about God which is father-like. And to see Jesus is to see the Father because he and the Father are one. And so Jesus is incarnate as a male member of the, of the, of the, of the, of the human race, as it were. Um, and uh, then inasmuch as his, the priest that he chooses to follow him and to complete his mission of his prophetic, priestly, 
and shepherding mission in his stead as the head of the body are all men, then that's why the priesthood is reserved to men. Because the priest represents Jesus, who represents the Father, and this is why Jesus only chose men and consecrated them as his priests. And that's been faithfully passed on in tradition for 2,000 years. Right? Never, the church has never deviated from that. Does that answer your question? That's kind of quick. I mean, obviously there's libraries written on the priesthood and the origins of the priesthood and all of that. Um, and then that's what's required for the, the sacred power to make transubstantiation happen, right? Uh, God willing, in another week and a half or so, on May 15th, I'll be celebrating 30 years as a priest, right? And, you know, dork, hot mess, sinful, you know, weak, imperfect me, bishop, successor of the apostles, laid his hands on my head and then extended his hands and said a prayer, and boom, from one day to the next, I could take bread and wine and turn it into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. How's that for a job, guys? St. John Vianney, patron saint of parish priests, put it this way um, about the humility of the priest, right? And, and this is what's humility? Humility is truth, right? St. John Vianney said, every day God obeys me at the altar. Think about that. Every day God obeys me at the altar. I take bread and wine and say, take this, this is the body and blood of Christ, and guess what? He makes it the body and blood of Christ. It's amazing. It's chilling. Unworthy, imperfect, sinful, but out of his bizarre, inscrutable, divine providence, he chose me and chooses other men to do that in his behalf. So that's amazing. You know, we talk about miracles. We think, oh, miracles and saints of the miracles and Lourdes and miracles. And oh, I wish you, it wouldn't be great if there were more miracles work today. Huh? Dudes, like, this is a miracle. Do you kneel in front of crackers? Are you here kneeling in front of this because it's a cracker? Why are you kneeling here tonight when you kneel? Because you believe by faith that that's in fact the body of Jesus. It looks like bread, tastes like bread, right? But we believe by faith that that bread, by the power, the sacred power entrusted to the priests, is consecrated and turned into the body and blood of Jesus. That's his, his miracle that he works every day at the altar here. So guys, if you're bored with your job, want to do something maybe a little more meaningful, you know, you might consider, you might think about pursuing the priesthood. It's a great gig. It's difficult. It's a sacrificial life. It's, a, it's victimhood. It is following Jesus on the cross. But hey, greater love no man has than that he lay down his life for his friends. That said, it's the same in marriage, right? Ephesians 5, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her on the cross. You want to know how you're supposed to love your wife as a husband? There. Whether it's priesthood or whether it's married life, it's total self-gift in sacrificial love for the other. All right, and that's probably, is it 8.30? I could go on all night about priesthood, marriage, Jesuits, all kinds of stuff. Let us kneel in front of the Lord, really and truly present, the most blessed sacrament. <coughs> I only had one thing about the Eucharist as long as we're, you know, it's like, you know, I, I've been doing this every day for 30 years. Thank you, Jesus, right? And sometimes if I'm out there where you guys are during adoration, I'm sitting there and I'm just sitting there, I'm like shaking my head and I'm like, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. There's, I believe it. 
and it's crazy that I believe it, and I would give my life for it. And if someone came in here to try to chop it up, I would like block it, I would like to think, right? And like I'm doing this every day for 30 years, and this is crazy, it's ridiculous, but you can't tell me it's not, you can't tell me it's not true. But this is ridiculous. This is, we're, cra we're the craziest people in the world. Like your peers that are out at Don Tito's right now, right? Drinking overpriced tacos and bad margaritas, you know? Um, they, if they came in here and saw this, they would either be, you know, hopefully they would be amazed, but they would probably think, you people are crazy, right? Kneeling in front of crackers. But hey, you can't convince me otherwise. I believe it. And for 2,000 years, people have been believing it and dying for it. So let's uh, keep the faith and follow on their tradition. Thanks for joining us today. And please remember to subscribe. And if you enjoyed our show, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. May God bless you.